Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine Radio Show. The show that harkens back to the days of ironing boards, 8-track tapes, and telephone answering machines. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe-smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine, uh, coming to you from the recording studio built here at my house just outside of Orlando, Florida. And on this week's show, well, you'll hear a pipe parts that I recorded back in July with uh, Jeremy Reeves, and it's on uh, growing tobacco. And you'll, you'll hear that because at that time we didn't think we were moving. Uh, and then my guest is uh, Charles Lemon, and Charles Lemon is the author of a uh, recently put out Brigham book. And he's Canadian, so it's perfect for International Pipe Smoking Day, which is when this show comes out. However, by the time most of you listen to it, International Pipe Smoking Day will have been over. Uh, and then we'll have a music mailbag and a rant, all that coming up on this week's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. Uh, just a reminder, uh, I will not be at the Mule Town Pipe Show this year. That's coming up March 9th and 10th. It's just not working into the schedule. Uh, there's just, I'll tell you in a little bit, but there's just too much going on here. Uh, I will be at the Chicago Pipe Show. And if you go to uh, chicagopipeshow.com, chicagopipeshow.com, They've got a great list of all the events, and you can go there and register in advance so you don't have to stand in a big, long line. And you will need your registration. Uh, you will need to pick up your registration to get into the smoking tent this year. So for those of us arriving early, uh, I will be there. I'll be arriving on Thursday, heading home Sunday night because we've got some uh, out-of-town guests coming the following day on Monday. So a little bit shorter trip than normal for me, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, excited about the new location because you know what? you get off the airplane you get your bag and you just wait for the free shuttle and it runs you right over to the hotel so uh, looking forward to that do check that out and uh, while you're looking at pipe show websites go to vegaspipeshow.com early registration is going on right now uh, tables and hotel rooms are limited so first come first serve basis make sure you book them and reserve them and if you do, uh, if you're just coming as an attendee and you register early, there's an offer there for you as well. Plus, everybody that uh, pays early, it really does help us keep the uh, <laughs> helps uh, helps keep the show uh, from having to go into my pocket to uh, to pay for it. So, head over to VegasPipeShow.com. All right, uh, let's get the show rolling. So everybody, sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. There's nothing quite like a good book, or my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. See for yourself at corncobpipe.com. A Savinelli pipe is a testament to a long legacy, fortified by well-worn hands and destined to be enjoyed for generations. For over 150 years, Savinelli has been dedicated to sourcing the world's finest briar committed to pushing the boundaries of pipe design, and devoted to the tradition of Italian pipe making. Savinelli is more than a mark. They're a way to help you make your mark. And like you, there can only be one Savinelli. 
are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show and joining us from just across the state line, but down by the coast where the, you know, where the beach is a lot nicer than here is uh, Jeremy Reeves, the head blender of Cornell and Deal. Jeremy, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Brian. All right. For pipe parts, we have a question from Guy and Guy writes in, I have a question for Jeremy on blending. Oh, and you're the head blender. So this works out perfectly. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to some brothers of the briar in a zoom meetup the other night, and we got onto the topic of growing and curing tobacco. A few of us had in the past tried our hand at growing some tobacco. Uh Oh, uh, it seems that all agreed what they grew and cured for a few weeks. Wasn't smokable. This got me thinking about curing time needed. I recall reading on many blends like Virginia Red Flake, for example, that some components that have been stored for a few years or more before blending. So my question is, one, is there in fact a much longer curing process that goes on for some higher grades of tobacco leaf? And two, is the longer term storage of cured tobacco leaf a part of the curing process? And so also contributing in some instances to the quality of the tinned packaged product. Thank you, Guy. All right. All right. Very so good. so Jer Jeremy, here's your chance to instruct a whole bunch of hobbyist growers on how to grow stuff and sell it to you. <laughs> um, all right. So most tobacco uh, that that is grown has to go through uh, some sort of curing process. That process of curing is really to uh, get rid of ammonia that is a natural bypro uh, byproduct of, of the tobacco. Um, aging that out, uh, you want to uh, reduce the chlorophyll in the leaf. Um, you want uh, you want some chemical processes that are basically uh, refining uh, carbohydrates and turning those into into more refined sugars um, in the leaf, and so and so. Your curing process is handling all that stuff. It is it is a process where lots of the things that were important to the the life of the tobacco plant when it was in the ground are not necessarily what you want to keep uh, when you're using this, this plant to, to smoke. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a difference between curing and aging. There's a difference between curing and fermentation. Uh, for example, the, the first turn on Perique is actually not a fermentation process. The first thing that's taking place in that first section of pressing is actually completing the curing process it's after it's after that first turn that you really go from uh from curing into a full a full fermentation process and the color change is much more dramatic after that first turn um, all of your ammonia should be out after your first turn um, but they don't do a full air cure on the leaf um, it is it is cured uh, by hanging and, and allowed to air cure, um, but it doesn't go through 
the longer air curing process that most tobacco would go through if it was going to be strictly an air cured product. If it was going to be strictly an air cured product that didn't have this secondary process in the barrel, they would actually let it hang for longer than they do. It's usually between uh, three weeks and a month, and it might go for closer to a month and a half if it was a full air cured product. Um, so, so there's some difference between curing and aging. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of uh, seed you were growing. I'm not sure where you're located and the soil conditions that your tobacco was grown in. And if you were comparing notes with other people who would use the same seed type and who were growing in the exact same area and soil conditions um, that you were, or if you're comparing notes between other home growers in disparate parts of the country or, or even in the same town, but different, different dressings and things for your, for your soil are going to have some different results. Um, but in general, if you've got the right conditions to produce what we call Virginia tobacco, which is a higher sugar, more moderate nicotine leaf, uh, you'd want to be growing typically in sandier soil. You'd want to be growing on a coastal area. Um, and you want very, very humid conditions. And then to really capitalize on that higher sugar content, you would want to use a process called flu curing. Flu curing, I think, is pretty tough for the average uh, home <laughs> grower. Yeah. Um, now, most flu cured tobacco producers, uh, the farmers are using um, basically a metal, uh, a metal container that holds uh, 20,000 pounds of tobacco at a crack um, in each container. And there is, a, there is a moisture sensor and a temperature sensor that's inside uh, that container. And then they can basically using a, using a computer program on the back of each one of these things, they can kind of control the weather inside. So you can perfectly control, control the humidity, you can perfectly control the temperature, and you can draw these things slowly down or cause them to slowly increase depending on what, what effect you're trying to achieve with, with the curing process. The curing process itself takes typically uh, between 14 and 16 days for most uh, tobacco styles. Uh, fire cured, different fire cured varieties um, may have a longer, uh, a longer set of, of uh, fire curing. Well, they'll do it in stages. Um, and so sometimes you see as much as 30 days of fire curing with downtime in between uh, to allow the leaf to kind of cool and to uh, draw in draw in moisture again before they start the fire back up and start the process over again. So different different curing methods require different time frames, but for something like flu curing, basically what you would want to do is to dry the leaf down very, very quickly up front and then slowly, slowly coast to like a low and slow uh, sort of thing. Um, 
the old way of doing that was actually in a barn that had you could close the barn up and it had fireplaces on the <laughs> outsides of the barn and so somebody would actually have to manually tend to several fires in these fireplaces on the outside of the barn and the flues the chimneys were uh, oriented so that they ran up the walls of the barn and across the ceiling and across the floor. So they were just radiating heat. This was just a way of superheating the, the barn without only relying on the ambient temperature outside. Um, but you couldn't really control the humidity. So sometimes they would have to kill the fire, open up the barn and allow humidity to come in and then close the barn again after it was nice and sweltering in there again and then and then continue on with their with their fires but i think that uh i think that flu curing in general is pretty tough to replicate well uh for a small number of plants you really need volume and an apparatus of some kind that's really designed for this air curing is a little easier because it literally is just hanging the hanging the tobacco in an open air environment um the barns that are used for air curing uh usually have an area up top where the tobacco actually hangs and then an area below where you can pull tobacco down and move it to different parts of the barn if necessary um, and the purpose for uh hanging the tobacco in in the upper portion the upper uh story of the barn is so that in the mornings you open the you open the barn doors and it allows humidity to rise up to the top and then you close everything in at the bottom and you just have the rafters open on the sides so um i think that there are probably like there's a forum for everything i'm sure you can find a <laughs> forum uh where you can learn more about how to do this on a small scale um, but for the most part, farmers that undertake this process have put a lot of time and energy into growing uh, not only the tobacco to fill their barns and building more barns when they need to, but designing their barns specifically to the type of curing that will be carried out there. So it'd be good for you to look at what kind of seed you're planting, what kind of area you're in, and what kind of tobacco characteristics your particular crop has and then going from there to figure out what the best curing method for your needs are and correct me if i'm wrong but i believe the farmers will also uh, because tobacco will draw certain nutrients out of the soil mm -hmm. they'll do a third crop of something else during the year because some of these farms will get two crops of tobacco a year and then they'll do a third crop of another produce item that doesn't draw that out, but then when you mulch it back in, it replaces some of those nutrients. So the, the nutrients of the actual soil are dramatically important for tobacco to be strong, healthy, and happy. That's correct. That's correct. So uh, peanuts or corn are really common. Uh, Sugarcane is, is something that a lot, of the, a lot of the guys in Louisiana use um, as a, as a crop to to grow and then clear everything out and grow tobacco there and then and then plant cane um so yeah some some way of replenishing the nutrients in the soil and just yeah. kind of being a cover crop as well to prevent erosion is really important and i don't think miracle grow sells a mixture perfect for tobacco so <laughs> <laughs> no uh, 
Uh, so guy, I hope that, uh, I hope that helps answer your question. And again, Jeremy, that's a, you know, Jeremy doesn't get to see these questions in advance. He just, I just ask and he rattles off stuff like that. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. And we'll be back in just a minute. This is internet radio for over 150 years. Peterson has welcomed all pipe smokers. It's the preferred choice of the thinking man and the everyman alike, and our workshop too is a place of hospitality and warmth. Hi, I'm Glenn Whelan, and for me, Peterson is a family tradition I've known since my childhood. My dad, Tony Whelan Jr., worked at Peterson for 53 years and has been my home since 2003. From sweeping our factory on a Saturday morning, to managing our store, to now steering our international distribution, I've seen the craftsmanship poured into each Peterson pipe. It lives in Jason's discerning eye as he handcrafts our silver accents and in Wojciech's able hands as he carves our rustications. It abides in Willie's grading and in Warren's papering. Peterson has welcomed us as contributors to its legacy. And it's a welcome we always extend to you. Cade Milafolge, 100,000 welcomes, wherever you come from, whosoever you be. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and joining me is the first guest I've ever recorded in the state of Florida. So it may go out of order, but you're the first one to you're my guinea pig, and 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 to get a guinea pig, you got to find a nice Canadian because well, that's kind of redundant because all Canadians are nice, but uh, uh, pipe smoker, pipe author, pipe repairer, restorationer, Charles Lemon, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Thanks very much, Brian. Glad to be here. All right. So, uh, where did you grow up? When did you grow up? Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> oh, did I grow up? Uh, <laughs> yeah. No. Did, did you? Uh, no. I uh, born born and raised in Ontario, uh, in the in the uh, southern southern portion of the province. Um, uh, grew up in the seventies, so you know, <laughs> running wild, climbing trees shooting my brothers with pellet guns, you know, all that good stuff. Normal. Yeah. Nor normal seventies. We don't want to see you till dinner time sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what did you, what did you aspire to do after you were done shooting your brother with, with BB guns and chasing them around until the streetlights came on? Well, I, uh, I did I did an undergraduate degree in business at uh, Queens university and then from there, I took a sharp left and went to chef school well, and <laughs> was a professional chef for new actively 10 or 12 years. Uh, specializing in a certain cuisine of any kind? Or? Not really, no. Uh, worked everything from, you know, stadium hot dogs to, uh, to you know, five-star hotel and wedding venues anything anything in between so it was uh very broad how is your uh how is your poutine <laughs> uh probably wouldn't win any awards mom i you know uh it's uh it's hard to get good good fresh curd where, where i am right now so <laughs> you need those that's that that's that's the canadian cuisine du jour so that's right. Yeah. All right. So when did uh, when did pipe smoking come into your life and how? Um. Well, I mean, I'd always, always, I knew my dad was a was a was a pipe guy. Um, 
we we lost him to a, a light plane accident when I was just a kid, um, you know, preschooler basically. Um, but you know, we always had you know photos and some home videos and stuff like that of him in you know with a pipe clenched in his teeth or whatever. Um, and we had the pipes, of course. Yeah. Um, at, and at some point in my youth, they, you know, my mom packed them all up, put them in a box. And, you know, they disappeared into the catacombs of the basement for years and years and years. And then when we finally moved out of that house, these things were found again and sort of distributed. I have four brothers, so there's five boys in my family. Wow. And each of us got at least a couple of dad's uh, pipe collection. But the, uh, the bulk of it seemed to land on my doorstep. Um, and I, again, in good form, put them in a box in the basement and forgot I had them until about 2013 or so. Mm -hmm. uh, but my first pipe I bought myself uh, back in about 1990, my second year university, and I was also uh, a, an Army Reserve officer at the time. So uh, I, needed, I needed something to keep the black flies at, at bay when we were in the field. <laughs> <laughs> so do you remember what that first pipe was yep i still have it it's a brigham 218 straight pair ah yes i guess when you were in college that i mean brigham would have been the pipe that was out and around in all the tobacco shops yep. yeah it was by far the most common to see in a, in a smoke shop uh especially especially in ontario I mean, the, at the time they were still making them in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, and that's where my parents grew up. So when my dad started buying pipes, of course, he bought local, you know, before it was cool to buy local. Um, Brigham had, I, at the peak, they had three retail stores in Toronto. So it was fairly easy to walk into one and pick something off the wall and, and, uh, and, and grab a pouch of tobacco and carry on. Right. Do you remember your first tobacco? Oh, it was probably Amphora Red. Okay. Which was, you know, <laughs> good standard drugstore blend. Yeah. It was, I, I think, I remember Amphora and Sale and they were uh, uh, Captain Black. Those were the three that were readily available. Yeah. Uh, my first good pipe tobacco took a lot more time to find. <laughs> So did pipe smoking stick right away for you? Um, it did for um, for a little bit, and then uh, and then it kind of went on the wayside. And um, I met my wife. We got married. We had kids. We had <laughs> all that stuff. And then say about about twenty thirteen, I rediscovered my dad's box. And of course, all the stems had oxidized, and none of them had been cleaned before they were put away. And uh, so I started researching, digging around on, you know, the primordial interwebs <laughs> and, uh, you know, trying to find advice or, or tactics. You know, what, what do I do yeah. with these? I want to clean them up. I want to, you know, uh, put them on display, um, that sort of thing. And uh, so I, I picked up bits of information here and there and, and did my best on, on reaming and cleaning and deoxidizing the stems and all that stuff. Left all the tooth dents. Uh, Dad had pretty good chompers by the looks <laughs> of some of these stems, 
Um, so there's there's still oxidation hiding in the pits because I'm just you know I'm not I'm not interested in actually using those. Those are right. those are mementos, not functional. Um, but that got me into into estate pipes, and I thought, oh well, I'll add some more. You know, and, and and I started going around to estate sales and antique shops, and and at the time, this this was this is sort sort of before the the estate pipe boom, I'd say, you know, so the middle of the twenty tens, uh, you could still root around in, in at, at estate sales and things and find yeah. and find some pretty decent quality pipes for you know five, ten, fifteen dollars a piece. And I'd bring them home, and I'd clean them up, and I, I kept the Brighams, uh, and I would maybe move the rest on to other people on eBay or whatever, and uh, and then my you know collection started to grow from there. <laughs> and did, did your wife look at you and go, um, "What are you doing?" Oh, I'm sure. Yes, there were. There were a lot of times when I start talking about a pipe I was working on, and it just would she would just glaze over, you know, <laughs> like yes, I'm listening, but I'm not really paying attention because, ah, eh, whatever. But you know, it it was less expensive than other hobbies I could have been. I could have been a golfer, heaven forbid. Ooh, oh, oh no. you know? <laughs> or or you could have been a moose hunter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, no, that was so. It was, it was it was a weird little niche, and and at the time it was a very, rather small online community. You know, I found a couple of forums and and would mostly lurk and, and listen to people and mm -hmm. and 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 ask a few questions here and there, and and it you know kind of just it was a very organic process actually moving from from just cleaning up my own things and, you know, as a hobby sort of thing. Then uh, I started, I started the dad's pipes blog in 2015. Like if you scroll way down to the bottom, uh, <laughs> the, the first post is in the fall of 2015. And, uh, and, and they're, I mean, very rudimentary sort of posts and, it was more of a way to share what I was doing and see if there were other people out there that were interested in the same thing. You know, we'd share techniques and say, this worked for me and I tried that and it blew up in my face or whatever. Um, and then it was a couple of years after that that I started actually taking on repair jobs for other people. Once I, I had to get my feet under me first, know that I was going to produce something that would be you know, useful to them before I started messing with other people's pipes. So you're, so you're saying you wanted to destroy your own stuff until you, before you got somebody else's in and played guinea pig with that and destroyed it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I wanted to be able to, to replace a stem on a, on a battered old gray bow or something before somebody sent me a, you know, a patent Dunhill, which would have terrified me at the time. You know, yeah. Like if I mess this one up, I'm done. I'm broke. I'm whatever. <laughs> I can't. I can't replace it. I will just move to the Yukon Territory and hide. That's right. See? That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I would buy literally boxes of dead and dying yeah. pipes. You know, the stuff that that didn't even make it to the counter in the uh, in the in the uh, antique stores. 
I'd say like give me like the worst of the worst, the cracked, the burned, the completely filthy, the whatever, <laughs> unrecognizable. And I would work on those. And, you know, I mean, there was no, there was no loss. There was, you know, it was a huge safety margin to work on things that were already yeah. destined for the bin, you know? Did you, uh, did you find any real jewels in that, in those uh, dead and dying boxes and? Yeah, nothing, nothing really uh, fancy. I did find, uh, I did find one old Dunhill lurking. Uh, and it was a complete disaster. The, 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 the shank had broken off the bowl. Uh, it was burned out. It was the, you know, the chamber was completely out around. Someone had taken a pen knife at it and, you know, made it more like a more octagonal than round trying to, trying to ream the edges down. You know, I pieced it back together and, and, and put a new stem on it. Probably rather clumsily. Now I would look at it and go, what did I do that for? <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but it worked. And, you know, I think it, it might still be lurking in my rack somewhere. Right. But, uh, We're going to more as a memory of what I was doing back then. We're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we're going to find out how a uh, business school to chef to author happens. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Hi, I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell and Deal. We know pipe smoking is a personal journey. That's why our small team of blending and production experts take a personal approach in every step, preparing tobacco products just for you. We source top quality leaf through the personal connections we've made around the world, hand blend that leaf, and carefully package each tin. Each product from special releases like our small batch line to our most popular mixtures like Autumn Evening are made right here in South Carolina by professionals dedicated to providing the finest of smoking experiences. Lighting up a pipe is an exploration through evolving flavors, thoughts, memories, and even dreams. From our hands to yours, Cornell and Deal tobaccos are your passport for that voyage, provided by people who, like you, value the journey. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show visiting with Charles Lemon, or uh, I may call you Franken Dr. Frankenstein after you Frankensteined uh, Dunhill back to pieces. <laughs> but you are also an author and an author of a brand new book. And let, let's, all right, so why? Um, first, first of all, let me ask you this. Uh, the book is Brigham Pipes. A Century of Canadian Briar. It's available now on, uh, I, I saw Smoking Pipes has it in stock right now and ready. Yep. Um, had you written any books before or was this just the, no, the, the chef? No, had... this, is, this was the first one. Yeah. Uh, and who knows, it might be the last one. You never know. <laughs> uh, but no, this was a first. Um, I think, I think writing, writing the blog for almost eight years, to nine years at this mm -hmm. point, uh, certainly helped. And uh, as I mentioned in the foreword of the book, I think I was working on the book for a lot longer than I realized I had been working on the book. Um, as I sort of mentioned uh, before the break, you know, I, I, I would 
you know, uh, go out and collect pipes uh, from from sales or off of eBay or uh, antique shops or wherever. And I kept the Brigham's because of the connection to my dad. Yeah. That was the majority of his pipe rack were, were the old made in Canada Brigham's. And so I had sort of a natural affinity towards the brand there. Um, and back in 2016, I wrote up an article um, called... Uh, Brigham Pipes, A Closer Look at Dots, Dates, and Markings, which was my first attempt at trying to understand what I had in my own collection. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, what am I looking at? I have these, you know, these shape numbers and, and, and they have different stamps on them, which are clearly from different time periods, but when and, you know, all that sort of thing. So it was, it was taking the material that I had available at the time and kind of massaging it into some sort of logical sense to, to, to help explain my own collection. Um, posted that to the blog. It eventually also got, to, got reposted on Pipedia, which was a great, uh, a, a great bonus for me. It drove a lot of people towards the website, which is always great. Um, I, I actually just put a disclaimer on the top of that article on the blog um, saying, you know, it was written with the information available at the time, but should be considered a legacy article now because since publishing the book, I know some of the details in the article are not as accurate or as complete as as the book. But the uh, that was that was sort of the uh, the starting point. You know, uh, just digging into my own collection and cataloging and, and trying to figure out what I had and when they were made. Uh, and that led rather organically to the beginning of the Brigham shape chart, which Brigham didn't have. No. Um, the company never kept track of the number of shapes they made or the codes assigned to them, basically. They kept track of sales by by uh, quality level. So we sold X number of one dots or four dots or six dot pipes in this period, but they didn't keep track of shapes. Um, so there was never a Brigham shape chart at the company. So when my collection of Brigham started to hit the 40 or 50 pipe mark, <laughs> I went, I got to make a list. I got to start, you know, I got to catalog this, this, this collection so that I know what I have. And then I started, I said, oh, well, I've got four or five, you know, O4 shape uh, straight billiards. Uh, but I don't need four of those. It's a collection. So let's, let's pare this down. And I started going for, I'm missing numbers in the sequence. And that was how the shape chart started. And I got, posted that to the blog and had people send me their Brigham pipes as well, you know. Send me a photo, send me a picture of the stamp, and I'll add it to the shape chart. So it, the, uh, the shape chart, the latest version of which is, is an appendix to the book, uh, complete with photos, uh, is really the first crowd-sourced <laughs> pipe shape chart in existence, I think, because it was parts of my collection and parts of a bunch of other people's um, that started it. And there are still quite a few blanks. Um, I, I kind of I made slots for one to a hundred and started pegging in shape numbers, and uh, there's still a lot of gaps in it. But uh, but it's it's the most complete catalog of Brigham shapes uh, to date. 
So are you still you're still actively looking for those missing numbers or to see if anything shows up with that number because it, it may not necessarily yep. be a number it, that well, was it may ever not used. exist and that was yeah. it yeah it it's sort of like Pokemon cards that way yeah. you know got it got it need it got it one of the, right. and, and is there one that fits in between you know I mean the the front half of the chart were the oldest shapes so shapes one through four are straight billiards in in different sizes you know. Uh, a, uh, an O1 is probably a group two equivalent uh, shape, so it's you know tiny bowl. O3, you know, an O3 right. is a little bigger, and O4 is a little bigger. Uh, five through I think seven or eight are um, um, anyway. Next series of shapes uh, in different sizes again. Yeah, and uh, and then as you get you get back beyond about number thirty. There starts to be gaps in the in the process, and I think um, you know they ended up doing variations on shapes, or um, you know a different size. There's a I think there's a shape in the early ones, uh, nine or ten that is a love it, you know, a standard sort of uh, love it round shank, round saddle stem, and then way back in I think it's shape ninety one is. Is a is a long, love it. I, the shape ninety is their long Canadian, the classic long Canadian shape, which I loved. I had two or three of them in the collection. I could never get a grip on smoking one. It was just, I would I would turn my head and whack something with it. You know, these <laughs> yeah. things were were almost six inches long. They were beautifully made, but but very. I found it very awkward. I love to look at it, but they were awkward for me to use. Um, but they do that sort of thing and just, you know, find a, a blank, you know, a number they hadn't used before, I guess, and 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 started up as a as a new shape code. And several <laughs> got reused over time. And it's, hey, wait, we have the number combination for that and we haven't used it. Let's stamp that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, basically. Did you run into any odd series of pipes or, you know, kind of one off finishes or production runs that were just out there? Um, the, well, there, I mean, there was, there was an experimental series, which were X shape numbers, uh, that was, they, they were put out in the sixties and, uh, went from sort of intricately carved, uh, sort of, you know, in a Mearsham sort of lattice work mm -hmm. style in Briar. Um, some of them very attractive, some of them. Yeah, not so much to my eye. One of them I've described in the shape chart as a tree stump with branches, uh, you know, because uh, that's kind of what it looks like. Um, but, the, you know, the, I think the catalogs of the time listed five or six X shapes, but I know there are probably a few more out there. Um, they're very rare on the estate market. Yeah. Um, and they didn't sell them a whole, uh, didn't sell a lot of them. So uh, they, 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 they were sort of a, let's try this and see what happens kind of series that was rather short-lived. Uh, similarly, in the, if you jump back about 10 years to the you know, early 50s, um, Brigham was still manufacturing non-system pipes yeah. as a, as a complementary line to the, to the, the, the filter system pipes. Um, I mean, they, they, the Canadian patent was issued in 1938. So just 
just before, well, yeah, just before the war. Yeah. And uh, not a lot happened through until the, you know, the mid to late 40s. Not a lot of briar uh, coming from Europe when you not Europe a lot of briar fire. coming from the Mediterranean during yeah. the early forties. No, unfortunately, yeah. right. So, so in the in the forties and fifties, they were still making non-system pipes uh, stamped with the Brigham name, and in the early fifties, they changed it to Canuck, of all things, um, <laughs> it as a way to separate the system pipes from the non-system pipes. Um, the Brochures from the from the late forties say, "Here's Brigham system, and here are Brigham regular pipes, um, <laughs> marketed for literally for the man who doesn't want any plumbing in his pipe. Non system <laughs> pipes, no plumbing, no gadgetry, no fooling around." Boy, they spent a lot of money on that marketing department, didn't they? They did. Yeah. They did. Yeah. Um, and so in the, in the early 50s, they changed the non-system line to Canuck pipes um, to, to differentiate. But by, by about 54 or 55, the vast majority of their pipe sales were Brigham system pipes. Uh, and so they just they quietly sort of dropped the non-system line. But they are still lurking out there on the estate market, if you could find them. At one point, I had three of them. And they tend to be smaller. They'd use okay. briar. They'd use blocks of briar that weren't large enough to accept the filter. Yeah, so so it was a way for them to recover some of the money on those smaller blocks that they bought. Yeah, yeah. What was uh, what was the hardest thing for you about doing the book? Uh, working with a dearth of information. Unfortunately, they're they're. Uh, I think Brigham as a company was not particularly sentimental. Um, whether that's a, a, a virtue of, you know, surviving the Great Depression or something like that, you know, they, they, they didn't look backwards. They looked yeah. forwards. And they, so this was the old one. And, okay, we're done with that now. We're going to this one. We're doing these things, these new things. We're expanding this way, adding machinery here, whatever. Right. Um, they didn't keep a lot of records and a lot of archival stuff. So when I started writing the book, um, the folks at Brigham were great, by the way, to work with, willing to share everything, but everything turned out to be four bankers boxes oh. of stuff. Uh, one of which was entirely catalogs from competitors at di from different time periods. So they had a grip on what was going on in the pipe market, but you know, none of that stuff was particularly helpful huh. to me, uh, trying to piece together a timeline over a hundred years of, of, of operations, you know. Uh, so there was a lot, of, a lot of digging and piecing together of stuff. I'd grab a, I could grab a bit from you know, Ancestry.com here, or I'd find uh, the, the Toronto City directories from, you know, 19, or well, actually the late 1800s through to about the 1920s. Uh, and those were great because they were, a, well, not really a phone book because that wasn't really a thing uh, at, you know, those early, yeah. the early years, <laughs> but they, they, they listed everybody, uh, all the businesses that, that were in Toronto. And then the, the other half of the book was people. So individuals, their 
living address and sometimes their job and where they worked. So I was able to dig through and say, oh, look, so-and-so is identified as a pipe carver working for Brigham and Co. Wow. On, on Adelaide Street, you know. So I could say, all right, we'll piece these things together. And it took quite a lot of just very broad sort of research in that respect uh, to, to condense things down to uh, a timeline that you could tell a story about. So that's kind of part genealogist, part, uh, you know, part uh, ar archivist and uh, archaeologist. It really was. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and even just, uh, you know, finding where, where did people go? Where did people come from? Um, why did they move where they moved when they moved, you know? Um, but I, I got to find some interesting things that the family was unaware of, which was kind of fun for me. I, uh, the, uh, the, the genealogy hunt actually discovered that Roy Brigham, who founded the company, yeah. was born in Kansas. Oh. Uh, his his mother, was, uh, mother was from Ontario. His father was English. And when... He, uh, before he was born, they they moved from Ontario down to Kansas, and I don't know why. The com uh, the family doesn't know why, um, but what we do know is that when Roy was two, his mother showed up back in Toronto with his older sister and Roy in tow, uh, without her husband. Uh oh. <laughs> uh, and moved in, moved in with her parents, uh, who were then living in Toronto as well. So something happened in Kansas, and that it's, it's a family mystery. There's I couldn't find any records uh, from the time because, well, you, as you can imagine, uh, uh, Kansas in the late 1890s was a little bit <laughs> wild well, west, a, li a little bit rougher. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it was. You know, these are. This is sort of just after the big, you know, land lotteries of the time. Yeah. You know, um, so it was still very much developing. I mean, there were there were certainly towns and cities and railroads and things, but you know, record keeping was a bit dicey, and 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 uh, archives weren't really no. well preserved. Yeah. So so there's there's gaps there, but it was interesting because I I got to tell. You know, I got to tell uh, Mike Brigham, who's grandson of uh, Roy, uh, that his grandfather was actually born in Kansas, you know, <laughs> uh, making the founder of the largest Canadian pipe manufacturing firm, an American by birth, but a Canadian <laughs> by life. I mean, he, he spent his entire life in, in Canada from the age of two. Um, so it was kind of, you know, those little bits of... Of, of trivia that sort of, that, that, that make it fun, yeah. you know, were there any, uh, were there any interesting pipe things and don't, don't give up all the good stuff. Cause we want people to go and buy the book and, and read all the really yes, good do. stuff. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Uh, Cause it is self-published. So, uh, you want, you, we want to support the publish uh, the author and the publisher. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was again, a lot of piecing things together. I mean, there was more information available about the pipes than there was about sort of the company records, mm -hmm. you know. Um, they had kept brochures from each time period, or in some cases, the remains of brochures from the time period. Because uh, back in the day, even, you know, through the 
60s, you made a brochure by cutting and pasting pictures onto paper, and then the whole thing was photographed. Yeah. You know, do you remember the old the old catalogs with sort of hand sketched images of pipes? You know, and they would clip those out of the old ones and reuse them for some of the new ones. And I've found brochures that where the you know some of the marketing text had been scratched out and scribbled over with with new wording and and things like that. Um, and it was interesting just tracking tracking the development of things, you know, it started off probably with a very limited uh, lineup of shapes, you know, yeah. your basic uh, doublings and billiards and that sort of thing. Uh, and as, as they expanded and as they, they got more, more staffing and more sales, they, they got more inventive with the shapes. Herb Brigham, who's the son of founder Roy, so the second president of, of Brigham, uh, was a uh, an inveterate tinkerer. Yes, he he retired. He retired in the nineties, but he would still show up in the shop on the shop floor three or four days a week, and he'd park himself at a bench, grab a block of briar, and just start fiddling. These are 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 what I refer to in the book as as his just for fun pipes. Because he he just fiddle and come up with a shape. Oh well, this looks like this is fun and okay. We'll stick a we'll put a stem on it and we'll. What do you think? What do you think of this shape, guys? Yeah, no, yeah, okay, good. You know, but because it was fully functional and and you know good quality craftsmanship, uh, they would they would pop a stamp on it and sell it in the storefront that was associated with the factory. They put and so, nothing. you know, you, you could find some one-off shapes that Herb had, had, had likely, you know, just cranked out in, in his retirement years from the shop floor. Yeah. They'd put nine or 17 dots in the side of it and, you know, create a whole new grade for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of them, I think a, a lot of them ended up with, with, with the uh, five dot pinnings. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were, they were good, but they, they were, well, they were one-offs. They were experimental yeah. shapes, you know. So they, I guess that he he didn't want to brag about them too badly. Um, but I I did manage to actually find one or two of them on on, on my hunts. So that was that was fun to find out. Um, and I I really enjoy the the original President series, yeah, uh, as well because they uh, they uh, they did they let the craftsmen go nuts basically with those. They said here's the best blocks. Uh, with the best graining, have fun, you know. And a lot of them came out looking, you know, fairly, I mean, standard nowadays as a sort of Danish-inspired freehand. And some of them got very fancy. <laughs> and then they also did the Sportsman series, which was kind of in that same vein of unfinished yeah, well, and weird and odd little tweaks well, to Well, unfinished is what those were. The sports, the sportsman pipes originally were only available at the Toronto Sportsman Show for the five days of the show in the spring of the year, right? And they were sold specifically to you know, hunters and fishermen and whatever. They were, you know, fully functional Brigham system pipes that came with the filter and everything else. Um, but they basically pulled them off the line before they were final shaped. They were turned. Uh, the shanks were done. The top, the rims were done. 
Um, but the rest of it was very roughly shaped and uh, sort of as a, you know, a midway point between, you know, a finished pipe and a carve your own block where, you know, a stem has been fitted. Uh, but they were sold as rough, ready, drop, drop them in the bottom of the boat, drop them overboard. Uh, maybe it'll fall, <laughs> fall in, fall out of your pocket in the woods somewhere. Uh, it's okay. They're, you know, you, you, you didn't pay for a top of the line pipe. Uh, and they were sold at a discount too. Uh, you could buy yeah. a two dot for the price of a one or a three dot for the price of a two at the show during the show. And then at a certain point, uh, their, uh, Brigham's retail partners started saying, hey, can we get some of those? Yeah. And they started selling the sportsman pipes during, you know, for a limited time in the spring of the year, um, but available at your local smoke shop. <laughs> and then it became a standard line uh, until they until they dropped them um, uh, in the, oh gosh, 90s. And then we brought them back Pulled for them back. We, we brought them back for a short bit while I was there, and it didn't work out because they were too weird and not understandable to Americans. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Charles, we'll wrap this up with the fast five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Yep. What is your favorite Brigham pipe? I'm going to stick with my original 218 straight pair. And what is your favorite tobacco? Uh, McBaron's Vintage Syrian. Out of production, but I've got a secret stockpile. <laughs> and that's located just over the border in Canada. Um, what is your favorite? <laughs> what is your favorite drink? Um, with a pipe, a cup of black coffee seems to be the thing that goes with it the best. Please don't say Tim Hortons because I've had that stuff and it's not good. Oh, no, no. Okay. All right. <laughs> when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? Tends to be a movie around here. And then finally, a favorite pipe smoking related memory? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I would have to run with the very first Christmas pipe that I was given. Um, my, my wife and daughters got me a Peterson, uh, B10 shape Christmas pipe about eight years ago. And, uh, the first, first bowl in that was, was kind of special for me. It was the first pipe that they had actually, that they had ever given me as a gift. And, uh, so it's a, it's a special one for me. Yeah. All right, the website is dads, D-A-D-S, pipes.com. That's where you can also get uh, pipe repairs, including a, a, you're, the, uh, you're, uh, you're, you're a Brigham Authorized Repair Center, so that means, that means you got the tenons, huh? I got the tenons. Yeah. Yep. Charles yep. Has Unfortunately, they, they're not interchangeable with the vintage ones. No. But, uh, you know. We can we can work something out. <laughs> I have a stockpile of old tenons. So you can get repairs done in, in Canada through the website. You can get the book through the website. You can also get the book on smokingpipes.com. Uh, thank you very yeah, much for it's coming also, on. Sorry, it's, it, I say it, it, the book is also available through Vermont Freehand now. There we go. As well. So two U.S. Uh, distributors, which is great. 
and and one and one in Canada. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You can get a signed copy if you buy it direct. <laughs> thank you very much for coming on and doing this, and thank thank you for putting out the book. It's a it's an important history that should be out there. Thanks very much, Brian. Appreciate it. And we'll be back in just a minute. Take a look at your pipe rack. Are all those briars and mirrors constant companions in your rotation? Or are there some that you gravitate to more than others? Are there some that you simply don't smoke anymore? Through SmokingPipes.com's estate trade program, you can transform those underused pipes into immediate cash or store credit. Just send us your pipes and we'll unpack, inspect, and evaluate them based on extensive market research and over 20 years of experience. Then, we'll contact you with a detailed offer for your choice of cash or store credit, valid on any items in our vast selection of pipes, tobacco, cigars, and accessories. If you're not happy with our quote, we'll return your pipes free of charge to domestic addresses. It's that simple. Join the thousands of Smoking Pipes customers who have benefited from this program and start your trade today by contacting us at 888-366-0345. That's 888-366-0345. This is Internet Radio. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yeah, check out the book. It's got it's a must-have for your uh, library of books. It's Brigham Pipes, A Century of Canadian Briar, available now. All right, for music, so living where I do now, I thought, you know what? This is a perfect song for where I live now. And it's uh, Louis Armstrong, who smoked a pipe, too, so... Uh, it's it's Louis Armstrong singing "Hi Ho" the Dwarfs marching song, and every morning uh, as I get up now, and I'm thinking, well, there are people that are marching off to work at the Magic Kingdom, so yeah, so that's why this song, and you get to hear it. Troubles go. Just keep on singing all day long. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. But if you're feeling low, you positively can't go wrong with high. I hope, I hope, I hope. It's home from work we go. Yes. I Seven in a row With a high, high ho High ho, high ho He'll make your troubles go You've heard him sing Now hear him blow The king, Satchmo High ho, high ho High ho Thank you. 
a song or two off of this album before but it's from disney songs the satchmo way by louis armstrong i forget when 1960s i think is when it came out uh but i can imagine if uh if louis armstrong was a was one of the seven dwarfs i would imagine his name would be smoothie well let's see what's in the mail Mailbag comments or questions can be emailed directly to me, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at PipesMagazine.com. That's the best way to get them to me. I am getting caught up on stuff, but if you haven't gotten a response from me or heard your question or comment on the show, you can email it again. That's B-R-I-A-N at PipesMagazine.com. That does work best. I do try to keep an eye on uh, Facebook and, and Instagram, but those are just, it's just so hard to keep them all grouped together and then find them on Tuesdays when I do the show. Uh, But this one came in through Facebook, and Matthew wrote, "Uh, I just listened to the latest episode. Always thank you for for your work and dedication to our hobby. I thoroughly enjoyed learning more about the Canadian pipe and what what distinguishes it from its relatives. As far as your rant goes, yes, I do not doubt that it will rub some the wrong way. However, remember, one man's insult is another man's badge of honor. Uh, You do not walk alone. If no one else, I stand with you 100%. Uh, The more educated and tolerant we are, the more our society will thrive. Willful and celebrated ignorance will be our downfall. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to the next time, Matthew. Uh, Matthew, thank you very much. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Ignorance is bliss. And then again, as usual with Dino, going back to last week's show, uh, the only shape of those you detailed that I own and like is the Lovat. I pronounce it Lovat, as in Lord Lovat, or Lovat, Lovat, huh? Pronounce it however you want. Um, I don't care for long pipes. Tyler was a delightful guest. He has an interesting history for a young guy, and I enjoyed the discussion about leather making. Uh, his leather work is both handsome and affordable. Uh, you Shook Me by John Lee Hooker and B.B. King is a masterpiece. I'm quite aware of what you're ranting about, and I completely agree. Thanks for the always entertaining show, Dino. And Dino is a retired teacher, so yeah, he knows what he's talking about. Uh, and Casey Ghost says, I am with Dino on long pipes. Don't like him. A five and a half inch Lovat is more than enough for me. Uh, for some who are less than secure in their masculinity may like the long pipes, but not me. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed Tyler as a guest, but you had so much ground to cover with him. I felt you kind of brushed over them. Uh, he does a nice set of leathers for people that desire them. Uh, I did like his uh, pipes that are in the pickaxe and elephant foot shapes. <laughs> yeah, John Lee Hooker is an outstanding vocalist, and I really enjoy him. B.B. King is a stellar musician, but as a vocalist, he occasionally leaves something to be desired. It was a superb song, nonetheless. Uh, nonetheless, uh, Good rant, even if I don't remember it. <laughs> there you go. It's 
probably the best way to listen to the Pipes Magazine radio show is to not remember it after listening. Uh, and then uh, finally from Steve Davenport, uh, Steve says, Hey, Brian, I don't usually comment on your music selection but uh, for the Pipes Magazine radio show, but this week I'll make an exception as I really enjoyed listening to John Lee Hooker and B.B. King. As I was listening to the duo on my way home from the pond yesterday afternoon, I was reminded of my introduction of the blues just a few years ago during the summer between 8th and ninth grade. I was part of a Georgia delegation headed to a conference for industrial arts students. Yeah, I was a shop nerd in Memphis. Uh, shop nerds were pre-computer geeks. Uh, we loaded up on a bus, fortunately not a school bus, left Atlanta early, and of course arrived at our hotel in Memphis before check-in. We were able to drop off our luggage and then headed out to find something to eat. Our group leaders eventually herded us into a little restaurant whose name I don't recall. It really didn't matter at the time as most of us were happy to get out of the Memphis summer heat and humidity for a little while. While we were there, a tall, somewhat portly black gentleman carrying a guitar case walked in the door. He headed to the back of the restaurant and talked to the owner or manager for a bit. They glanced over at us a couple times and eventually the owner manager nodded and the man with the guitar case came back over toward, uh, toward where we were sitting. He sat down in a chair, opened up his guitar case, pulled out a big black electric guitar, plugged into a nearby amp and began to play and sing. It was a style of music and a sound that I had not heard before and it grabbed a hold of me and didn't want to let go. He never introduced himself, but we later learned that, that the man who played an impromptu set for a bunch of high school kids from Georgia was B.B. King himself. Yeah, how's that? Uh, thanks, Steve, for sending that in. So again, comments, questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. And in just a moment, rant time. We have arrived at 155. Missouri Meerschaum Company has been authentically crafting corn cob pipes continually for 155 years. To celebrate, we're hosting a 155th anniversary celebration on Saturday, September 28, 2024. There will be ticketed working plant tours, an exhibit on the corn cob pipe industry by Skillet Fork Pipe Museum, a live podcast of the Gray Woody Show, a smoking tent for your enjoyment, and so much more. The 155th anniversary celebration will be held in conjunction with downtown Washington's Fall Festival of the Arts and Crafts with food, beverages, live music, and over 100 vendors. Visit our Facebook page at Cool Smoking Pipes for fun event updates and more information. Missouri Meerschaum Company, since 1869. we have a problem. We copy. State the nature of your emergency, please. Houston, we're out of pipe tobacco up here. We copy. Stand by. The flight director recommends visiting tinbids.com, the pipe collector's auction site. You copy? Roger, Houston. Stand by. We're looking into it. Okay, we're on tin bids now. They have vintage and hard-to-find tobaccos, pipes, and accessories. Is that correct? That's affirmative. That's tinbids.com. Okay, Houston, we've secured our tobacco. Now, how do we get it up here? Um, stand by. We're working on a solution. Visit TinBids.com, the pipe collector's auction site, and sign up for free today. We have liftoff. 
I draw your attention to a YouTube channel called Theme Parks Shouldn't Exist. And we'll put a link in the uh, show description here uh, down below. Uh, and I, I draw your attention for a rant and a rave. Uh, the rave is because he just released about two weeks ago a video entitled Disneyland's Main Street Tobacco Shop. Now, it is a modern take on somewhat anti-tobacco, but he does a very nice, honest job in presenting uh, the, uh, the the tobacco shops and the time of and the time when they came when they were open and the and the closing of them and the information all within. Now, thanks to uh, Andre who pointed this to me, pointed out this video to me because I probably would have never found it. Uh, here's the uh, rant part. Yeah, he used a ton of my images from my Disney Tobacchiana collection on Facebook, which is uh, 95% my photographs, of poor, my poorly done photographs of my Disney Pipe and Tobacchiana collection. And then it took me about three days to finally get a hold of him or get a response from, uh, in, get a message to him in the chat. Not so much for him to do anything except... You know, just give attribution to where he got probably 25 or 30 images that he used. Uh, it's hard to tell on some of the images because some of them are scans or, you know, close-ups of stuff. But he definitely took pictures, uh, took the pictures from my Facebook fan page showing the, the pieces of collection that I own on my carpet <laughs> in three different houses, two different houses, and used them in the video. And long story short, after badgering him and uh, having a and then having a nice discussion in a chat on the uh, channel with him, uh, yeah, he put attribution up there. So uh, it's Disneyland's Main Street Tobacco Shop, 1955 is the name of the video. The channel is Theme Parks Shouldn't Exist. Go on there if you're go on YouTube, give it a listen or a watch or whatever you do on YouTube, and. Uh, and the link will be in the description below. So sh shout out to him and a rant. Uh, if you guys are on YouTube and you're doing videos and you're using a bunch of images from someplace, give attribution to it, please. That's all it takes. You know, most of us just want attribution. All right. Uh, comments, questions, email me, Brian at pipesmagazine.com. Uh, Apple podcast ratings and reviews. Much appreciated. Go on to, uh, go on to the, uh, on the pipes magazine and you'll see all the pipe show and pipe event listings there either on the pipe show page or on the events and meetups in the forums go on there check those out if you've got an event hey email kevin and we'll uh, and he'll hook you up all right thank you very much to jeremy thank you to charles for joining me thank you all for tuning in and until next time Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Three. Happy trails to you. Tell me again.
after the beep, leave a message, and no one will hear you. Beep.